Devin? Hello? Yes, you waiting for Devin? Yeah, I would like to listen to the show. Oh, okay. You're breaking up. The code is 305? Yes. Okay, I'll put you in queue. Yes, well, welcome to the No One Talk broadcast. I'm your host, D. Heflin, for tonight. Wanted to just thank everybody for bearing with us as we endured just a couple of technical difficulties, but wanted to just thank everybody for their patience. We can go ahead and get right down to our guest for tonight. I'm very honored to have her on the on the No One Talk broadcast. She's the founder and CEO of Bridge the Gap Coalition. Welcome with me, Sister Ewa Pelly, to tonight's broadcast. How are you doing, Sister? Thank you for being on the No One Talk broadcast. How are you, Devin? I'm great. Doing fantastic. Uh, Sure, just getting right down to our interview, just tell our listeners about Bridge the Gap Coalition with regards to its mission and vision. All right. Well, um, Bridge the Gap Coalition was born out of the necessity for filling gaps in underserved communities where the needs of citizens have gone unmet due to a lack of education, gaps in funding, inadequate access to knowledge of resources that benefit the community. Um, basically, what we do is identify the needs or the demand of the community through grassroots efforts, and then we identify and partner with community organizations who meet those needs or the supply and create workshops and events that make those organizations and their services or their products accessible to the communities that need them. If we find that gaps exist in meeting community needs, we partner with professionals and organizations to create programs that bridge those gaps. Mm-hmm. So essentially, what we are is a collective of community businesses, professionals, organizations, and volunteers who share a vision of community empowerment. And because we have the, the knowledge, resources, and skills, our purpose is to take the responsibility for bridging gaps that continue to disenfranchise our communities. We're not leaving it up to the government. Right, so we take the initiative and believe that our united efforts will maximize our community's attitude to realize our highest potential. Indeed. And how long has Bridge the Gap Coalition been in existence? Well, we're relatively new. Um, uh-huh. It's been about half a year, but we're, we're going strong. We were established in July of last year. Okay. And what are some fundamental issues in the Orlando community that you would like to work through 
this year with Bridge the Gap Coalition? Well, um, essentially, um, we're looking at the poor turnout of encounters with law enforcement. Um, this was inspired during the time of um, last year when we had the, the shootings of Philanda Castile. Um, sure. You know, yeah, so basically, um, we're looking at the poor turnout of encounters with law enforcement, and it's, it's, it's evident that we as a people are grossly misinformed or uninformed about our legal rights, particularly when it comes to interacting with police. So uh, we automatically feel threatened because we feel that in the face of authorities, we don't have any rights, when in reality, we actually do. Um, our Know Your Rights workshop was inspired, like I said, by Alton Sterling and Zona Castile. I think everyone at that point reached that crossroad between complacency and action. We chose action. I had been a part of Know Your Rights workshops with the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement while I was in college and decided that, um, you know, we don't have enough. We don't have enough of those workshops in our community and that it was time to make more of those workshops accessible. Um, the difference between our Know Your Rights workshop and um, workshops in the past that were similar is that we incorporate a visual aid of actors to keep the audience engaged with hypothetical scenarios that, would like, that they would likely face if they were encountering law enforcement in various instances. We do this as an effective method to instill within our participants um, the memory of their rights as opposed to like just sitting there and listening to a speaker and, you know, going in one ear and out the other. So um, uh, we've partnered with Valencia's theater department. Um, and most recently we brought the Know Your Rights College edition to their campus. And we are, we're going to be doing that on the West campus as other um, college universities. We, um, we definitely have some um, opportunities open to us for that. Um, we are also working on the Know Your Rights workshop teams. And um, yeah, I've, it's, it's been great. We, have had a tremendous support from the ACLU, particularly from um, the Central Florida chapter's president, um, Charter Richardson, so definitely blessed with that. Um, something else that we're working on um, is um, bringing access to unfiltered history. Um, of course, you know, from the time we were young, our history has purposely been tampered with, and oh, it has yes. hindered our progress in that we are moving blindly and misinformed into our future and repeating the same mistakes. Um, those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it, as the same goes. And as I watch this whole catastrophe play out with Trump, I see that the climate is one that mirrors the post-Reconstruction Jim Crow era. And this is a dangerous thing because that is the era of race riots, one of which occurred right in our backyards in Okoye. We actually thought that, you know, was a great start, and we brought forth the Remembering Okoye Project, which focuses on educating our community about their history for clarity and direction, particularly economically. Um, so that's something that we brought back in November, which also happens to be the anniversary of the Okoye Massacre that occurred in 1920. It was initiated with a panel discussion entitled the Okoye History and Economic Solutions Panel, which featured West Orange Reconciliation Task Force um, Attorney Jerry Gurley, Democracy Forum's uh, Francine Boykin, as well as Richard Cuss of Nisumba and Lawrence Robson of Community Steeple. Um, we have an Okoe Massacre Memorial Tour that we are currently planning, as well as a youth scholarship in which we are raising funds to encourage youth to get engaged with their history and, connect to, and basically connecting the dots between Orange County's past as it relates to the massacre and solutions for our future economically as a people. Um, we also have a community garden memorial that we are planning as well that, that is dedicated to the victims of the massacre. Mm -hmm. 
those are some yeah. of the major projects we have. We have another third project that we're working on, but I'm not going sure. to reveal that right now. <laughs> I'm very excited about it, however. Keeping it temporarily under wraps. <laughs> yeah. Sure. And, and for those that are in the community and might hear about Bridge the Gap Coalition, how can they become involved? What are ways in which the community can become involved with your organization? Um, I think that the easiest way at this time is to connect with me on Facebook at Uwapale Olamilakin, or um, you could also access Bridge the Gap Coalition's Facebook page as well. Our web, our actual website is still under construction. So up until then, um, Facebook is the best way. Sure. And and you knew, you enumerated on it briefly at the beginning of our interview, but speak more about some of the core platforms of Bridge the Gap Coalition. Well, um, our platforms are community-based economics, period. <laughs> like you'll see us, um, <laughs> we constantly hashtag community-based economics. So that's our primary platform. Um, so community-based economics and the community development, also community, community needs-based advocacy, as well as community outreach and grassroots education. Those are our three core platforms. Okay. And oftentimes, many of my listeners and some, some of our readers, if you will, on my, on my daily news site, they'll often ask the question, what, what are some of the challenges in, in operating an organization, especially an organization that's suited to meet the needs of our community, so to speak? Just elaborate a bit on if, there, if you see any, if there are any challenges with operating a community organization. Well, I mean, we're essentially, you know, we're in the beginning stages. And um, I, I would just say this organization itself, you know, getting people who are committed and, and, you know, there's a lot of people like they have the passion, they have the desire, but they just don't have the time. So what happens is that you have a lot of people who, who make empty promises, not so much empty that, you know, it's, it's not fueled by passion, but it's just that, you know, they're just, they're just not able to actually, um, um, you know, to, to fulfill their promise just because of other um, priorities that are pressing for them, which is completely understandable. But, you know, sometimes what ends up happening is that, you know, you, you, know, you have these meetings, you have these volunteers, they're saying, we're, we're coming, we're coming, we're coming, we're going to do this, and then they end up not showing up. You know, so that's probably, like, one of the biggest challenges that we faced so far. Sure. And what's some advice you would give to maybe that young man or young woman that they might still be in high school when – or they might even be in middle school for that matter, and they want to get involved in their community, but they just don't have the direction in which to do so yet, or they feel like they don't have the resources or means with which to fully immerse themselves or get involved with their community. Well, I mean, essentially, Bridge the App Coalition was done off of very little resources. <laughs> you know, it, it was just, it, you know, we everything we do is based off of partnerships. You know, so um, essentially, all you need are people who are dedicated, one, and two, you just need the vision. And even if you don't have people who are initially dedicated, stick fast to your vision and those people will eventually come. You know, don't be discouraged by a lack of numbers. Don't be discouraged by a lack of participation. Don't be discouraged because your friends, you know, don't quite, you know, agree or they're not as, you know, passionate about your vision as you are. Just move forward on it. And those people who are as inspired, those people who are as driven will. Mm -hmm. 
and definitely don't don't be discouraged by a lack of money because those resources will come as well. And Sister Iwapale, just briefly just expound on maybe some parting advice you would like to give for our community tonight as they're listening in to Bridge the Gap. Some parting advice. Um, <laughs> hmm. <laughs> There's really so much that I can say, but um, I guess I'll, I'll definitely say um, research. um research research everything that you're told you know don't don't believe the hype don't get drawn into um you know these media um these media media titles that are you know they're they're created to draw you in but you don't get past the title and you don't you know you don't read the article you know i i always encourage people to to read and critically read you know read between the lines because there's a lot of information that is, you know, being given, but, you know, there's, there's information that is true and then there's information that is false. And, you know, in order for us to move forward effectively as a people, we need to be able to discern between both. So you know your history, research, don't just read these titles and think that you, you've been informed you're woke, quote, unquote, you done wrote, you know, you read a subtitle or whatever, and you're like, oh, yeah, this is happening, and you really don't know what the hell is going on. You know, please read, research, you know, know your history, you know, get up on John Henry Clark and these other historians who've paved the way, who have, who have the research, you know, who have the history down in, in books and articles, read up on them. And, and really know who we are and where we came from so that we understand fully where we are going. Absolutely. Well, we certainly enjoyed you tonight and enjoyed your perspective on the No One Talk broadcast. Once again, for those that are just calling into the No One Talk broadcast, this was our interview with Sister Iwapale, who's the CEO and founder of Bridge the Gap Coalition. All right. Thank you so much for having me, Devin. Absolutely. You're definitely welcome, Sister Iwapale. Take care. All right. All right, and there you have it. That was a great interview, and she shared a very great perspective in terms of what Bridge the Gap Coalition is doing on behalf of our community by way of economic empowerment and also educational opportunities. We're going to take a brief break, but we will be right back. We've got much, much, much more tonight on the No One Talk broadcast in store for you, so stay tuned. We will be right back.
Liberals want you to only suffer less. Conservatives want you to suffer. Everybody wants in until nobody wants out. Black behaviors and psychology in this country are holdovers from the plantation. Post-traumatic slave syndrome convinced black people to reject their humanity and accept the humanity of another people as the de facto version of how human beings are supposed to live, interact, and coexist. It made black people compassionate to the humanity of white people, yet indifferent to their own survival and preservation. Therefore, when a white person is caught committing a wrong publicly, you can count on one hand the number of seconds before a black person rushes to said white person's defense to justify or explain their actions. Black people have been taught to value white ideals, white family structures, and their plagiarized versions of morality above all else. We seek alignment with other groups who didn't align with us. As we endure the problems, they waited on the sidelines until the signing of the paperwork. Black people, as they're receiving their wake-up call, don't answer their phone for them. If a man was to take care of children other than his own, provide them with food, shelter, resources, and the materials they need to survive on a monthly basis, yet his biological children were starving and struggling to sustain themselves on a monthly basis, you would call that man a deadbeat and suggest that he reassess his priorities. Black America must reassess its priorities and stop acting as step-parents to the issues of other groups. Our people in this nation have been very careful to not disrespect other groups. However, other groups have moved into our communities, established economic legacies, and disrespected our people. Black people were respectful to the Asian community, who in turn sided with the Kai Gurley's murderer, Peter Liang. Black people were respectful to Latinos, who sided with George Zimmerman in the murder of Trayvon Martin. The same colorism battle still exists with the denial by white-skinned Latinos of Afro-Latinos and that their ancestry remains with the Xi or the Olmecs. Black people have been respectful to Caucasians and in return for this respect have had to endure 380 years of enslavement, brutality, degradation, destruction, and executions which continue to this day. Therefore, black people are not being disrespectful when we respectfully decline to reach out to other groups who clearly refuse to reach out to us as we were murdered by police, racially discriminated against by judges, and gentrified out of our own communities. See, a lion trainer works to train lions to perform for service audiences. The trainer, versed in a variety of tricks, props out a stool with four legs to delude the way in which the lion translates its reality. The trainer, though friendly to the lions, isn't under any illusion that he's a friend to the lions. The lions, however, believe the trainer to be a friend, having forsaken their organic natures as rulers of the jungle, forgetting that their might is greater than that of the trainer and that they outnumber the trainer. The trainer has a psychological advantage. For many of these lions, he's owned since they were cubs and have grown accustomed to the cages which confined them, believing their environment to be a cage. Though they're told they're lions, they weren't socialized to act as lions. The above is analogous to the intersectional marches which have taken place in the, in the aftermath of the Donald Trump election. And is also analogous to the Women's March on Washington, a march, to, a march meant to rally the feminist and champion for a perceived preservation of rights. It's interesting that white women who represented the majority of demonstrators voted overwhelmingly in support of Donald Trump, which verified the message that white women will vote to preserve whiteness over any other prerogative. As the lion trainer depends upon the willing ignorance of the captive lions, the co-opting of authentic black empowerment and enfranchisement depends upon the acceptance of white disruptions to true movements. White feminists and their sympathizers are little more than a slave master's wife who's only complaining because she didn't get her own turn to oppress the Negroes. White feminism is but a branch of white supremacy whose core values are the maintenance of the white image globally, 
promotion of white standards of beauty, and, fe- and feigning opposition socially, but full subservience to the political order, which is white supremacy. Remember, it was the slave master's wife who promoted the education of black children in the big house. So by the time the children were old enough to work in the fields for her husband, they had been so thoroughly brainwashed into an inferior thought pattern that they willingly submitted to the white way of doing things. It was the slave master's wife who lured black men into sex farms to produce new generations of black workers for white families. It was the slave master's wife who helped her husband popularize buck-breaking, an emasculation technique against a black man designed to demean black male leadership and manhood. It was the slave master's wife who seduced black men in the sundown town so white populations could put their ropes to use in lynching. It was the lives of white women historically which were responsible for the bombing of Black Wall Street, the massacre of Rosewood, the murder of George Stinney, and the murder of Emmett Till. With this visible blood on the hands of white feminists, why have black activists so willingly joined and continue to join hands with them? The entire concept of Western feminism was a sick psychological theory coined by Simone de Bouvier and Betty Friedman, the latter of which created the theory in response to Sigmund Freud's psychological findings. After the assassinations of Minister Malcolm X and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., white feminists infiltrated the black community and succeeded in convincing black people that their problem lay not in systemic white supremacy, but in gender issues which hadn't existed in the black community prior to complete feminist infiltration in 1968 onward. Prior to 1965, the black community had a two-parent family structure, a 7% divorce rate, and was the driving force of this country's business prowess and accomplishments. The assassinations of Minister Malcolm X, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and the sabotage of the Black Panthers made it easy to destroy the black community using this racist social theory because these men weren't around to warn us of what was coming. Feminists sponsored by the government were able to convince the once strong black family that they needed to be together no more and reinvented the bedwinch, the sambo, and the jigaboo stereotypes for new generations. White feminism changed the narrative by convincing black women that black men were the enemy and white men were exempt from all crime, that gender fluidity mattered more over gender forms, and that children didn't need the presence of a man for their daily development. Black feminists such as Audre Lorde, Alice Walker, and Angela Davis have done, have done little but precept, but parrot the precepts of their white feminist leaders and have assumed a lesser bedwinching role of using what little power their cohorts reward them as servants of Caucasian males. Black feminists are only opposed to male power so long as that male is black. If white feminists are your sisters, why have they been silent on the deaths of more than 19 black women who died in police custody under questionable circumstances in the last year and a half? Why were white feminists silent during the case of Daniel Haltzclaw, who raped 13 black women while they were in his custody as an officer? White feminists were also unsurprisingly silent as Sean Penn reportedly threw Madonna down a flight of stairs years ago, and as Johnny Depp was accused of abuse, yet they crucified Ray Rice and Chris Brown. Charlie Sheen publicly admitted to endangering the lives of countless women with his very public illness, yet white feminists didn't call for the removal of his shows from television. Dr. Bill Cosby, however, has been deemed guilty until proven innocent. I'm reminded of the words of Dr. John Henry Clark, who taught us, when the European colonized the world, he colonized information about the world. What the Caucasian didn't understand was that the world perspective was dominated by dark people before his arrival. Therefore, because of his illiteracy, what the Caucasian didn't understand regarding the sophistication and intricacy of these societies, he immediately labeled it demonic. Such is the reason why he had the nerve to build this perverted branch of Christianity off the demonization of what was once the natural way of the world. Just think for a moment that all of your sensibilities, impulses, and reactions have been made artificial over time to fit into an artificial society. 
In your early miseducation, you were thoroughly indoctrinated into rejecting Africa and disregarding its inhabitants and its civilizations. You were taught to hate your dark skin, convinced that blondes have more fun, and that the only acceptable black in modern media was the black who was somehow connected to the white man via the product of the interracial union. Media convinced you that to claim blackness would bring instant ostracism and would make you a target for not only white outsiders, but members of your own race that seek constant favor with the white outsiders. The Eye of Ra, the Ankh, the Pyramids, the 42 Confessions of Ma'at, the coming forth by day and by night, and the mystery systems were labeled as demonic because said systems and schools of thought existed without any white man's interference. You were taught to embrace the branch, but not the root. The branch of the discussion was the cross, whereas the root is the Ankh. The branch of the discussion was demonism, wherein the root was the principal demon who was committed his lynchings, cross-burnings, disease-spreading, genetic, biological, and maniacal warfare without consequence the world over. I ask you tonight, who were you before his intrusion? Everybody wants in until nobody wants out. It's very interesting as we continue to look at what's going on with the White House and what's going on with white America, period, is that they cannot seem to get it together. We, we witnessed the, the resignation of Mike Flynn. We also witnessed that Kutzow is now out as the contender for labor secretary and for the treasury, and so now he is out. So we're witnessing the entire crumble of that establishment and of that order. So the imperative for black America at this time should be full organization. It, it should be full optimization. It should be full mobilization. It should be a storing up of our gifts. Right now, I tell you, my brothers and sisters that have called into the No One Talk broadcast tonight, and thank you all so much for listening in. It's your imperative to be Noah instead of Moses at this time. Although Moses had the Old Testament decree and command to speak to the ruler of that day and tell him to let my people go, and he was in charge of one million people leading them across the desert out of bondage, as the story says to us in the book of Exodus. By Exodus chapter 14, we notice that Moses gets a little weary. His heart gets a little faint because the same people that he has led out of captivity are now complaining to him. They're saying, Moses, you brought us all the way out of bondage to die. Were there no graves where we were at? <laughs> and so imagine leading one million people, one million dispositions, one million different attitudes and variations of personality and thought. One million different excuses, one million different shoulda, woulda, couldas, but didn't. So this was Moses' dilemma. And so Moses had to turn around and tell the people, just simply stand still and see the salvation of what is manifesting before you. But I encourage you to go just a book prior to Moses. Go from Exodus and go back to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 6, there was Noah. Noah continued to warn people that change was coming. And people would not change until the change fully arrived. But by the time that the change fully arrived, Noah and his family were safe.
everybody 